Father, Father, where are you going? Oh, do not walk so fast. Speak, Father, speak to your little boy, or else I shall be lost. The night was dark, no father was there. The child was wet with dew. The mire was deep, and the child did weep, and away the vapor flew. Welcome to the Troubadour Podcast. Today I will be reading The Little Boy Lost and The Little Boy Found by William Blake. Now, this is, I believe, the eighth poem that I've read from the Songs of Innocence, published in 1789, and the public and republished with the songs of experience in 1794 to be a total book called the songs of innocence and experience showing the two contrary states of the human soul. We've read the piper, the shepherd, the echoing green, the lamb, the little block boy. Uh, we skipped the blossom. We've read the little, chi- the chimney sweeper and we've read spring. And I've also read a couple of poems in there from the Songs of Experience. And now we're going to read two poems that go together, The Little Boy Lost and The Little Boy Found. Now, I try my best to make these um, episodes like uh, standalone, but I highly recommend reading them together, even if you don't watch all of my episodes. And the reason for that is that great books of poetry put together by the author intended in the way that they are feed into all the poems feed into each other. So you miss so much when you simply read a poem out of context, not just are we reading it out of context in terms of it's 2020 versus 1789, but we're reading it out of context because we're reading a poem on a white piece of paper separated from all the other poems, like reading a, even if it's a good chapter, of a Victor Hugo novel that's separated from the rest of it, it might make some sense and be kind of interesting, but it's not going to be as, you know, totality and and the wholeness of it is obviously lost. That's much more obvious in a novel. But it, it does apply to poems as well. So first, let me give you a quick recap. These poems are short, so this will probably be a shorter um, episode. In fact, the first poem, The Little Boy Lost, I already read it to you. I'll read it again. And we'll go through it, but that's how short it is. It's very quick. So here's a recap of some of the stuff we've learned if you've been following along in the podcast. So the first thing I've stressed over and over again is reading all the poems in Songs of Innocence and Experience. Read all of them. The next thing, number two, is that the Songs of Innocence are absolutely some of the best poems to read to very young children. So these young children just learning to experience um, and enjoy and play with words. Children love to play with words. Even if they don't understand the words, they love big words. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, baby. Number three, Blake was the most Christian of all the Romantic English poets. The Romantic English poets canon of six is Blake, Wordsworth, Coleridge in the first generation. Kelly, Keats, and Byron in the second generation. So Blake is the most Christian, but he's also equal or the most anti-church, which we're going to see a little bit of this today. So he's religious, 
but not for the church. In other words, he's a mystic. He believed in the power of his imagination. He thought that his imagination gave him real images, and he would actually create stories that you could read, and he would create new characters to go along with Milton and the the you know so, the the kind of imagery that we have from the past. And he believed that poets had this power to to show you what the the you know the afterlife and things like that would actually look like. And in fact, you know, we get our view of hell and burning and the horned, you know, uh, devil. That's not something that was originally in Christianity. That's something that poets brought in over time. Number four, he's against oppression, Blake is, and repression, sexual repression, any kind of pushing down of your natural inclinations. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like it when the state or the church or anybody oppresses another another person. Number five is he likes to explore the stories we tell, the moral stories we tell, and how they affect us positively and negatively. So for a really good analysis of this, look at my episode on the little black boy and the story that a slave mother in England tells her little black boy, who's a slave too, to reassure him and make him feel better about his order. But what about his order in his place in the world? Like, why is he black when all the other people around him are white? And why is he a slave and other people aren't? Why is that happening? And then, you know, look at that. So the story she tells him and what it means and what it does to him. Number five, uh, or number six, excuse me. He believes that there are two fundamental states in human nature. That's innocence and experience. And we talked about, we compared him to Wordsworth, who Wordsworth believed there were two states uh, for human existence as well. Except for Wordsworth, he thought of it more like almost you lost the stage of innocence at one point, read Tintern Abbey, but you were recompensed with what he called the philosophical mind. Now, on some level, I think Wordsworth understood that there was innocence within you forever. But he fundamentally thought of it as a shift, as a difference. And, you know, that he didn't, when he, when he got older and he went to Tintern Abbey for the second time, for instance, which is an abbey in England, he didn't have the high passions he felt when he first saw it. Instead, he was able to look at it more philosophically. But it reflected in his sister's eyes her wildness, her passion. Of course, ironically, he, she's only like two years younger than him. So it's not that big of a difference. And so, you know, you have to ask like, well, how much does age play into it? Where does experience come from? I mean, there's other questions to ask, but he thought of it as like, there's innocence, you lose it, you gain recompensed as he puts it with the philosophical mind. William Blake, on the other hand, believes that the contrary states of innocence and experience are kind of fluxing within you at all times. So he believed in the dialectic process of synthesis, or excuse me, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Thesis, one idea, an opposing idea, boy, lo boy lost, boy found, together they give you something new, a synthesis. And that's how he believed was in us those two states of innocence and experience. Always, they were always, you know, every day there was a new synthesis. There was a new, and the, the innocence was still there in its you know, original form uh, to some degree. It was kind of shaped along the way as you go into experience. Now, 
Okay, let's read these poems, um, and then I'm going to read them first. I want to read The Little Boy Lost, and we're going to read it, um, and then we will look at the hand-drawn painting, that, or the hand-drawn um, letter that Blake created. This. He, he created a page in his book, and he actually drew the, the pages. They put it on these special metal plates that he invented. They printed them out and then he would hand draw them. And that's what they sold during Blake's time. He didn't sell a lot of them because he didn't have enough output for, or didn't have the ability to sell a lot of them because he was so tedious in its nature and production. So he wasn't as famous in his time. And I think that's one big reason is, you know, he could only put out a couple dozen of these things. Okay, let me read this poem again. Let's talk about it briefly. We'll, then we'll do the, um, the lost, the found poem. And um, then we'll wrap up. This will hopefully be a shorter episode for you today. The Little Boy Lost by William Blake. Father, father, where are you going? Oh, do not walk so fast. Speak, father. Speak to your little boy. Or else I shall be lost. The night was dark. No father was there. The child was wet with dew. The mire was deep, and the child did weep, and away the vapor flew. Okay, so here's an image. If you're looking on troubadourmag.com, I'll put these pictures up. Just scroll down. Or go to um, you know Facebook, Troubadour Magazine, YouTube, I have under Kirk Barbera. Um, the, the, these, uh, I put these up under my name on YouTube. And then, of course, uh, you know, you could be listening on iTunes, Spotify. That's great. So just go to the website for the pictures. But you could see a, the painting, the picture that he drew. And I can't 100% tell. Maybe you guys can get a better image or better understanding. I pulled this off the Internet of what the little boy. So you have a little boy. He's um, running towards something and it's like this little white ball of some sort. And there's like this dark forest. And if you see the images and the um, stories that we get bef before little boy lost, like the echoing green in particular, where there's all this playing in, in the uh, park with family members. But at the end, there's this tint, there's this teeny little tinting of the dark. And the last line is, you know, it, it, the poem is called The Echoing Green. So the, the refrain is on the echoing green, on the echoing green, on the echoing green. And then the last line is on the darkening green. And the, the painting of the picture is like this very beautiful, natural scene of family playing. You know, it's, it's quaint. But in the corner is a storm off the horizon. And that is what his idea that there's even in innocence, there's a little bit of experience, right? There's, which has got the darkness to it. And here in Songs of Innocence, this is a song of innocence. You have this darkness going on and he's running toward what looks like a light. And what is he saying? Where are you going? Why are you walking so fast? Speak to me or I'll be lost. And then the boy is out and, you know, he's in dew and then the dew evaporates and now we have to ask ourselves, well, what are the metaphors going on here? Another thing that, you know, again, Blake really believed that if you read this poem to a six-year-old, 
the six-year-old would get one idea of the poem. And if you read it to a 36-year-old, that 36-year-old would get another idea about the poem, something completely different. They'd be opposed to each other. And both would be correct. That's the point. The Little Boy Found by William Blake The little boy lost in the lonely fen, led by the wandering light, began to cry, but God, ever nigh, appeared like his father in white. He kissed the child, and by the hand led, and to his mother brought, who in sorrow through the lonely dale her little boy weeping sought. Okay, so here is an image of the little boy found by William Blake. And you could see, now it's interesting, it's kind of hard to tell, but you could see the mother is, her face isn't clearly shown, but she's definitely been distraught, right? Um, and the boy is also been distraught. The boy looks like a little girl, though, right? And there's something about the innocence of children that look like girls. And, and by the way, sometimes little boys do look like little girls. Uh, or they, you know, they both look similar, I should say, boys and girls. Now, you, have, you could see in the background there's this really darkness, and they look like they're walking into the light. You know, I think a little boy or a little girl, like a six-year-old, would get a very simple story of this boy, who this child is chasing a father who's walking too fast, the little boy gets lost, and then God figure comes, helps them, and instead of, ta- instead of God taking the little boy back to the father, God takes the little boy to the mother. Now, two things. One, when I was, I remember very clearly when I was, I don't know, five years old, Six years old, I was very young, and I don't remember my youth very much, actually. But one memory I have is we were in a store, my father was looking around, I looked to the, you know, I looked one way, and the next thing I know, I was by myself and I couldn't find him. I was lost. I think that's something that all children, very young children, can get, they can really feel. And I think Blake understands these very simple emotions that a little boy can feel where he feels completely lost. You know, you're running around, you're crying, you're, you're like, where am I? I'm completely lost. All of a sudden, you know, your anchor to the world is gone and you have no idea what's going on. I mean, that's how it feels to be, I think, a five, four-year-old, six-year-old even, all of a sudden, you know, out by yourself without realizing it. Not, you know, you have no idea and you don't, like, where did they go? And you don't have any concept and anything to hold on to to, to find that thing. Uh, well, you know, your father. And, you know, you could get this sense, like, and I've even seen, you know, you could see like in a store, like a big store, like slow, you know, like little boys say, slow down. Like if there's a big mall, and there's a lot of people, you could imagine like a little boy saying, slow down, slow down, or you're going to lose me just like the boy in the first one. And then I'm going to be lost. Right. And there's a fear of being lost. And there's even movies about little boys being lost and like have to get the courage to go do what they have to do to get found. Right. So th- this kind of idea has been around for a long time, but I think Blake captures it very simply. And then in the second one, instead of finding his father, he finds his mother. Now, as adults, I think we can get an analogy out of this. Part of that is understanding the totality of Blake's poems in Songs of Innocence and Experience, which is why you have to read all of them. I'm just going to tell you what I think the analogy is, and I'm pretty sure I'm right. 
<laughs> but maybe I'm wrong. So first, before I do, what do you think the father represents? What do you think the mother represents? Look at the pictures a little bit. Although they only help a little bit, but he's in a forest. He's surrounded by nature and he can't find his way. But then he's led, you know, in nature in the uh, found poem by the mother. So what could the mother represent? Mother Earth? Probably, yes. And the father? Father Church. Now that might be a little bit more of a stretch if you just read these poems by themselves. But if you know the other songs of innocence and experience, it makes a lot of sense that the father, the ordering figure that you're, the protector is actually corrupt and leaving you and makes you lost. And in fact, there's a poem which we covered called the shepherd where the shepherd, and I didn't catch this. I had to read this because I'm not a shepherd. I've never known a shepherd. Uh, I don't know anything about it, but in 1789, people would have known that the shepherd in that poem is following his flock you don't follow your flock as a shepherd apparently you lead the that's the point of being a shepherd right but in the poem he's following and there's something weird about that and and about agency and about how the the shepherd is actually not leading anywhere and that's kind of a problem and you get that again here and so the question is well what does that represent it's not jesus or god god comes in in this poem, or these two poems, and takes the boy by the hand and brings the boy to the mother. So what uh, role does God play in this, in this story? He plays the role of simply showing the, you know, the, he's the supernatural role that brings the boy into the sphere of the mother and to, you know, kisses him to make him feel better, to reassure him, and to let him, you know, do you know, let the mother take care of things from then on. The father has abandoned his duty. Now you can get this, I think, you know, today we might think psychologically of the mass abandonment by fathers of their children. And that was a, an issue at this time too. It's always been an issue in human nature. And the problems that that causes, I think that's one layer you can get out of this. But the next step from that in Blake's world and in the world of 1789 especially, is the, the because uh, these are the questions that are in the air, is what value does the Christian church really hold? It's supposed to protect us. It's supposed to tell us um, you know, how to live good lives, and it's supposed to help us become found. But over the last thousand years, last couple hundred years, whatever, the church has become more and more corrupt. It oppresses, it, you know, it helps pop up, Institutions like slavery, it tells you how to stand, how to sit, who you can and cannot have sex with, which Blake was not a fan of. Uh, it tells you when you can have sex, right? You can't have sex before marriage. Again, no repression for, Ray, uh, for Blake. He hates that. And I'm with Blake on that one. So that, you know, that's the things that he's starting to think, well, what, there's something wrong with the church. And he starts to question it. Even though he's a fan of the religion, the Christianity, the, the imagery. So I kind of analogize or compare him to Jordan Peterson today. If you know Jordan Peterson, he doesn't seem to be a big uh, church goer, but he is absolutely in love with the religious stories. He believes that they, you know, have uh, over thousands of years, they're the best what does he call it? Like researched or, or footnoted stories. And there's 
the people always editing and changing and perfecting them. And they're the most perfect stories, the most archetypical stories. That's why they're the best. Whatever. That's his whole thing. And, and I see what he's saying from that. My point is that Blake is kind of similar in the sense that he's not really for the church. He's not, a, he's not for oppression or repression, but he does like the mysticism. And in fact, he creates his own characters from it. So I think that is a lot of what's happening in the uh, songs of innocent or the uh, little boy lost and the little boy found by William Blake. Now we're going to continue this series. I hope you enjoy it. I'm enjoying the process of creating these for you. Please go to troubadourmag.com. You know, go to uh, wherever you want to see these. You know, wherever you're watching this or listening to it, leave a review. Uh, share it, do something. It really helps me to know that you guys care about these poems and that it's helping you. And if you're a teacher or a parent and you want to know some techniques, um, you know, we could talk about that in the future as well to teach these poems. This poem, these two poems are absolutely perfect for young, young, young children. Um, you could show them pictures if they, you know, like what a fen is, what dew looks like, the vapor, like you could show them that stuff as well. And then, you know, kind of go out with this you know, kind of show the poem and let them read or read the words to them if they're too young for it, if they're old enough to read the words and help them to read it. And then, you know, I would even as an adult talk to them, you know, just and and ask them what they think happens and and try to bring it out. It doesn't have to be a long conversation. It's a simple little poem here, but it really helps them, you know, keep hold of that love of poetry, which I believe is absolutely natural to human beings. I think it's the most natural of language is verse comes first. And this is after, this is historically true and it's true of our development. You know, we talk in rhythm and rhyme when we're young and in ancient times that's how it all started with verse prose came much 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 later. Um you know, we even did we wrote uh like navigation and and the, when we investigated the world, we wrote it in prose. History was wrote in, written in, uh, written in excuse me in verse. That's how, you know, I think things are much more natural to us, but we lose that today because it's beaten out of us. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed Troubadour Podcast and The Little Boy Lost and The Little Boy Found. I'll see you next time.